Good morning. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn in your New Testaments to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we are going to be reading a familiar story, but we are looking at it through a uh, slightly different lens today. So this is the story uh, that is called The Story of the Three Servants. beginning at verse 14 of Matthew 25. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a trip. He called together his servants and gave them money to invest for him while he was gone. He gave five bags of gold to one, two bags to another, and one bag of gold to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. And then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of gold began immediately to invest the money and soon doubled it. And the servant with two bags of gold also went to work and doubled the money. But the servant who received the one bag of gold dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money for safekeeping. And after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. And the servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of gold said, Sir, you gave me five bags of gold to invest in. I have doubled the amount. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Enter uh, and celebrate uh, with me. Now uh, came the servant who had received two bags of gold. And the report uh, with the report, sir, you gave me two bags of gold to invest, and I have doubled the amount. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Come, let's celebrate together. Uh, then the servant with the one bag of gold came and said, Lord, uh, I know you are a hard man in harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops that you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth, and here it is. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, uh, you think I'm a hard man, do you? Harvesting crops I didn't plant and gathering crops I didn't cultivate? Well, you should at least have put my money into the bank so that I could have some interest. Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of gold. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So as uh, Mary Beth indicated, uh, we're continuing our series on the building blocks of our faith, the series, uh, What Do We Believe? And today we're asking the question, what do we believe about faith? What do we believe about believing? And uh, in our prayer time this morning with our elders, I said, I don't think I've ever uh, preached a sermon on what do we believe about believing? What is it that we believe about faith? Uh, it's a question that resists, it turns out, easy answers. Uh, there's some complexity there. You thought the Trinity was a hard one. Uh, this is equally challenging, but it's an important question. 
Uh, the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. The Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. Without faith, the Bible says it is impossible to please God. Uh, we're told to keep the faith, to grow in faith, to share our faith. Jesus says repeatedly, repeatedly that it is faith that has made somebody well. It is faith that will make you whole. In worship, every week we confess our faith. We hear the stories of our faith. In our bookstores, our popular books about integrating faith and work, uh, faith and rationality, the Christian faith and other world religions. In our culture, sometimes we hear phrases like blind faith, leap of faith, coming to faith, losing our faith. What is it that we're talking about? What do we believe about believing? What do we believe about faith? Uh, as you sort of survey the sets of assumptions in our culture today uh, and in our churches, I think there are two sort of broad camps that will emerge. Uh, one set of assumptions is that faith is largely, perhaps primarily, a cerebral exercise. It, it's content. It's information. It's a set of beliefs to believe. It's a set of assertions to adopt. Uh, to grow in faith, in this view, is to grow in knowledge. And on the other hand, uh, is, a, is a, a view of faith that uh, is maybe in some ways the opposite view. Uh, for the other camp, faith is an experience. Uh, it's a feeling. It's a conviction. Uh, it's something that happens uh, more subjectively. Um, John Wesley famously wrote that his heart was strangely warmed as he read the book of Romans. And it's that, that sort of inner sense of being strangely drawn to God that is what faith is about. And so the question is faith something that lives primarily in the head? Or is faith mostly something that lives in the heart? Maybe make that question more personal. Is your faith something that lives mostly in your head? Or is your faith something that lives mostly in your heart? Where does your faith reside? The text today really is a story about faith. And in order for us to see that, we need to uh, see something about the Greek language that stands behind our text. And in the Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in, uh, there is only one word that is used to capture the idea of faith. And the noun version of that, pistis, can mean trust, it can mean truth, it can mean belief, it can be faithfulness. It means all of those things wrapped together. And the adjective version of that is pistos. And that can mean trustworthy. It can be faithful. It can be trusting. It can be believing. All of those ideas are held together uh, in this one single word group. In other words, in the Greek mind, these two belong together. If you are a faithful person, you are a trusting person. If you're a trusting person, you're a faithful person. You're a pistos person. So look at this story again, and you'll see that Jesus is drawing out for us a contrast between a pistos person and a non-pistos person, between a believing person and a non-believing person, between a person of faith and a person without faith. He's drawing out a distinction for us to see. We see it beginning in verse 21. The master was full of praise for the things that 
the ten talent uh, servant had done. Well done, my good and pistos servant, my faithful servant, my believing servant, my uh, truthful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. You have been pistos. And then he draws that out again in verse 23 to the uh, two-talent servant. He says, well done, my pistos servant. Well done, my faithful servant, my believing servant, my trusting servant. You have been faithful. You have been full of faith in the way that you have conducted yourself. And then the one-talent servant. He draws a comparison by saying that this individual has no faith. This person is without pistos, without belief, uh, without trust. And what is it that we learn about faith as Jesus draws out this distinction for us? And what I want to suggest is that uh, what we learn is that there are at least three dimensions to faith in the New Testament. There are at least three dimensions to faith that Jesus wants for us to hold on to. And uh, these are the three dimensions. The first one is covenantal faith. The second one is epistemological faith. And the third one is eschatological faith. We're going to walk through each one of those this morning. The first one is covenantal faith. And covenantal faith is faith that is primarily lived out in relationship. Uh, It's experience. It's a faith that we have not just... uh, believing things about somebody, but it's falling in love with somebody. Uh, When we say that we are faithful to our spouse, we are talking about covenantal faith. We're talking about a love relationship within which we make and receive and keep promises to each other. In the context of those promises that we make and we keep to each other, the faithfulness that we live out is all surrounded, not just knowing things, about a person that we happen to be married to, but it's knowing the person. It's entering into a deep relationship so that our promises become increasingly personal and increasingly meaningful. Jesus' parable assumes that there is a trusting relationship between the master and the servants. In verse 15, the master divides the resources, Jesus says, according to each individual's ability. The master knows the ability of the servants. And when the five and two talent servants are rewarded, it isn't only the greater responsibility that they're rewarded with, but they are also rewarded by entering into deeper relationship with their master. They're invited to come in and to celebrate. Uh, Other versions, other translations say, enter into joy today. Uh, The reward is a relationship with the master. The reward is an, uh, an increase in the joy, in the celebration, in the experience of the relationship. On the other hand, the servant who buries his single talent in the ground, he knows a whole lot of things about the master. He knows some things about the nature of what the master is like. He says that he knows the master is a hard man, that he is harvesting crops that he didn't plant and gathering crops that he didn't cultivate. He knows things about his master, but somehow he manages to miss entirely the heart of the master. It's not surprising that we would find this covenantal, relational, experiential dimension of faith in the New Testament. Since one of our greatest 
Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, stresses that in the language of the Old Testament, faith is everywhere associated with this idea of covenant. Brueggemann says, faith has less to do with particular ideas than it does with the integrity of a relationship. He states, faith concerns attentive engagement in a promissory relationship. Only rarely, he says, does the Old Testament suggest that faith is a body of teaching that Israel is to believe. Israel's faith does not necessarily lack normative substance, nor is it vacuous. But, he says, and this is the key point, the relationship, the relationship is more elemental than the teaching that reflects upon that relationship. Reformer John Calvin comes along. And some of us think, well, John Calvin, he, he writes uh, lots and lots of books about the things that we're supposed to believe. He's a systematic theologian. He's a, he's a, a categorical thinker. But Calvin also has a, a, a soft spot in his heart, in his theology, for experiential and relational dimensions of faith. Uh, and over and over again, he insists that it isn't so much that we know God as it is that we experience God. He says that believers experience God as they experience, but can hardly be said to know, thunder. So firsthand faith for Calvin is the result of this experience with God's awe-inspiring presence and power. In the experience that we have with this God defies verbal uh, description. And instead, it's something that we just sort of feel in our bones. It thunders in our chest, like a great subwoofer that's just been cranked up. An article in the Washington Post entitled, I am an atheist, so why can't I shake God? Uh, recently pointed to this same dimension of experiential faith. The author, uh, Elizabeth King, tells how she abandoned her childhood Christian faith for atheism. She says, Until my mid-teens, I was a born-again Christian who loved God with all of her heart. These days, though, I'm an atheist with nothing more to prove. Uh, the story of my departure from the church resembles those of many others who have abandoned the flock. When I was about 16, I started asking questions during the services uh, that my youth pastors couldn't or didn't want to answer. Why is it a sin uh, to be gay? Why is it okay to spank children? Why, where does the Bible say we can't have premarital sex? Still, in spite of her atheism, she says this, Somehow, God has found a way to stick around. And in the end, she admits, I have no choice but to accept that I'm an atheist with a sense for God. Do you have a sense for God? Have you experienced the thunderous, awe-inspiring presence of God in your life? Are you thunderstruck by who God is? Do you long to please the Father heart of your God? Are you deepening a relationship with Him where you speak to Him and He speaks to you and you know Him and He knows you? Our faith has a covenantal, relational, experiential dimension. 
There's another dimension to faith that we see in this parable of Jesus in Matthew 25. We find here that faith also includes knowledge. Uh, here we've called this dimension of faith the epistemological dimension. Epistemology is uh, a branch of philosophy. And if you're an epistemologist, if you study epistemology, you are studying the question, what do we know? How do we know it? What are the uh, grounds for what we know? What is the evidence for what we know? Uh, epistemology has to do with knowledge. And our faith includes knowledge. There are things that we know in our faith. Uh, Richard Robinson was one of the leading atheist philosophers of the latter part of the uh, 20th century. In 1964, he published a book called An Atheist's Values, in which he said this. He said, Christian faith, and this is an atheist defining Christian faith for you. He says, Christian faith is not merely believing that there is a God. He says, it is believing that there is a God, no matter what the evidence may be. Have faith in the Christian sense, he says, means make yourself believe that there is a God without regard to the evidence. And it's this kind of thinking that gives rise in our culture to the concept of blind faith or a leap of faith. And the Bible comes along and says, no. We, the Bible has nothing to do with that view of what faith is. The Bible rejects all of that. The Bible says faith always has to be grounded in evidence. It's always grounded in, in what is uh, rational and reasonable. Uh, we find a God in the Bible who says, come and let us reason together. In the Bible, we find a Jesus who comes to us and, 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 and uh, gives us the, the example of a relationship with Thomas who doubts him and, and can't believe what he's seeing, even when he's seeing it. And Jesus welcomes the doubt of Thomas. Uh, in the Bible, we have a Paul who repeatedly cites the testimony of eyewitnesses to the events that they experience. Because Paul knows that the evidence matters. Faith in the New Testament is never irrational. It's never without evidence. In fact, faith always is wrestling with evidence. Faith is always seeking understanding. And so what I want to say to you this morning is this. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid when, when students and teenagers and, and, and friends ask hard questions and, and push hard on the answers. Don't be afraid of your doubts. Test the ideas. Come seeking, wondering, experimenting. Biblical faith has room for all of that because faith has an epistemological dimension. It has a knowledge dimension that's very concerned with what do you know and why do you believe it? And the whole story that Jesus is telling here as a parable, uh, Jesus says in verse 14, is intended to tell us something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus wants us to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're not just simply left with a set of vague impressions or spiritual experiences. There's content. There's belief. We can know things about what heaven is like. Faith has belief content. Now, we can believe uh, some things about how God's kingdom works based on this teaching of Jesus. Teaching that itself is reinforced by the miracles of Jesus. And teaching that is also reinforced and held by the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, maybe you want to uh, just pause and object again at this point, and you want to say, but the Bible itself, if that's where you're getting your ideas, the Bible itself is confusing. The Bible itself contradicts itself. It isn't clear. Uh, even Christians disagree about what it means. Look at all of the different Christian brands and flavors out there. Lee Strobel comes along and says, well, it's true that there are places in the Bible that are hard to understand and, and sometimes confusing, and, and they may not be clear. And uh, we may disagree about what some of those places mean. But he says what's also true is that sometimes we go out of our way to make what is absolutely crystal clear complex. He uses this example. He says, imagine a daughter and her boyfriend going out for a Coke on a school night. The father says to her, you must be home before 11. Is that clear to everybody here what that means? It gets to be 10.45, and the two of them are still having a great time. They don't want the evening to end, so suddenly they begin to have difficulty interpreting the father's instructions. What did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us, or was he talking about you in a general sense, like people in general? Was he saying, in effect, as a general rule, people must be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are at home before 11? I mean, he wasn't really very clear, was he? And what did he mean by, you must be home before 11? Uh, would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible? Uh, he probably means it as a suggestion. I know that father loves me. So isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And if I am having a good time, then he wouldn't want me to end the evening so soon. And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? Uh, he didn't specify whose home. Uh, it could be anybody's home. Uh, maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is? Uh, my heart is right here, so doesn't that mean that I'm already home? And what did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Uh, did he mean that in an exact literal sense? He never specified 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. He wasn't really clear on whether he was talking about Central Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time. In Hawaii, it's still only quarter to seven. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it's always before 11. Whatever time it is, it's always before the next 11. So with all of these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we can't be held responsible. Sometimes we take what is clear and do our best to make it confusing. What Strobel is saying is absolutely true. Uh, it's not that uh, we, we don't understand God because we don't, because we can't, but because we don't want to. Uh, we don't believe in God, not because of a lack of evidence, but because the evidence points us in a place that would pinch our lifestyle or rub up against our sense of freedom. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have come to believe. He's talking about here the content of faith. He's talking about men and women coming to believe based on the presentation of evidence in the single, clear, unambiguous message of the Bible. The center of our faith, the faith that believes Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah, the one Lord who alone saves us. Faith has some content. And finally, there is an eschatological dimension to our faith. Uh, Eschatology is a branch of theology. It's the branch of theology that has to do with last things. Uh, In an eschatology class, you will study uh, how will the world come to an end? Uh, What will the end of history look like? How will Jesus return in victory and glory? What are all of the bits and pieces of that understanding? And so part of the Christian faith, according to Scripture, is that we live our lives in light and in anticipation of the coming of this Jesus. And we see this really clearly again in this teaching, in this parable. Remember that this parable is an illustration. It's an illustration that Jesus is giving to illustrate something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the master in this parable represents God. And the servants represent God's people. And what happens? The master goes away and he leaves the servants to live faithfully in his absence. And when the master returns, there's an accounting for what they've done in his absence. And as the story of Matthew continues to unfold from this point on, we learn that the uh, disciples are about to have this same experience with Jesus. Jesus has been living with them. He's been teaching them. He's been preparing them. He's been developing a covenantal relationship with them. They have relationship. They have knowledge of Jesus. And now Jesus is about to go away. And they are going to be called to live faithfully in his absence. And that's precisely the same time frame that we're living in today as well. The master is gone. We're called to live faithfully. The master is going to return. And what we know about that future, when we live with that anticipation, it will begin to shape how we live today. Our understanding of the end of the story, Jesus comes back. That's our eschatology. Our understanding of the end of the story shapes and molds and determines how it is that we live in the middle of the story. Tim Keller illustrates this idea with an example. He says, imagine that you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. Uh, You hire both of them and you say to them, you are now a part of an assembly line. And I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to the next person in line. And I want you to do that over and over and over again for eight hours every day. And you put each of these women into identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, ventilation. You give them the same number and nature of breaks. You give them the same food every single day. To the the degree that you can, you make their conditions identical except for one difference. To the first worker, you say, 
at the end of the year, I am going to give you $30,000 for your work. And to the second worker, you say, I'm going to give you $30 million for your work. And after a couple of weeks, the women meet together in the lunchroom. The first woman says, isn't this tedious? Isn't this boring? Isn't this driving you absolutely insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no. This is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. And so Keller asks the question, what's going on? What's the difference? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What is it that makes the difference? It's their expectation of the future. It's their eschatology. Uh, this illustration isn't intended to say that what we all need is to have uh, the uh, right amount of income. But what it is intended to say is that what we believe about our future completely controls how we experience our presence. Uh, it would be hard to preach a message about faith and not mention the book of Hebrews. The Greek term pistis is in the book of Hebrews more than 30 times. Uh, the majority of those times occur in Hebrews 11, the famous chapter about faith. Hebrews 11 begins with the statement, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, that's the eschatological dimension of faith. It's a future-oriented faith. It's a faith that allows our understanding and conviction about what is still to come to shape who we are today. It's faith that trusts in God's promises of restoration and reward that ultimately stand at the end of history. The servant who lacked faith was fundamentally afraid of the future. And he buried his resources in the ground out of fear. He hid from the future. The faithful servants were willing to engage. They were willing to risk. They were willing to invest because they approached their future with confidence and with joy. What you think about your future will shape your experience that you live out today. When all three of these dimensions of faith are present in our life, something happens. When all three of these dimensions of faith are alive and active and being nurtured in a person's life, that person will begin to have the experience of God doing miraculous things in and through them. Uh, unexplainable things, um, experiences with God that defy explanation. And this isn't my promise. This is the promise of Jesus. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, back in Matthew 17, Jesus has an experience with his disciples where a sick child is brought to the disciples. And the, you remember the story? The disciples try to heal the child by praying, and they can't cast the demon out of the child. And Jesus comes along and dispatches the demon easily. And the disciples come to Jesus, and they say this. 
in uh, Matthew 17, 19. Why couldn't we do that? Why do you have so much more power than us? And Jesus doesn't say, well, because I'm Jesus and you're not, or because I'm God and you're not, and you'll never have as much power as me. When they say to Jesus, why couldn't we do that? What Jesus says is, because you don't have enough faith. You, you don't have enough faith. Oh, you of little faith, you faithless people. Why are you putting what you have in the ground? And then he says this. Because if Jesus comes to you and says, oh, you didn't have enough faith, you might be tempted to say, oh, my word, I'll never have enough faith. How could I ever have enough faith to pray for somebody and see them get better? How could I ever have enough faith to pray and have forgiveness happen in my heart? How could I ever have enough faith to pray and see a marriage restored? How could I ever have enough faith to see my children bend their knee finally to Jesus? How could I ever have that much faith? And Jesus says, the next breath, you just need faith the size of a mustard seed. It's very, very small. The smallest of all seeds. Jesus routinely and consistently criticizes little faith. He criticizes little faith. He says, oh, you of little faith, what's wrong with you? He, he criticizes people of little faith as being faithless, as being without faith. Uh, he, people with little faith don't see the power of God at work in them and through them and around them. But Jesus always celebrates small faith. Mustard seed, small faith, he celebrates it. If only you had faith the size of a small mustard seed, you could move mountains. God would really be able to work through you, he says. What's the difference between little faith and small faith? I want to suggest that little faith, faithlessness, is faith that is single-dimensional. It's faith that only operates in our head. It's faith that is only a feeling. It is faith that is only an empty hope. Single-dimensional faith doesn't penetrate our lives, doesn't bring us to surrender to Jesus, doesn't give God access to all that we have and all that we are so that God can do the miraculous, mountain-moving, God-glorifying things through us that he longs to do. Jesus says, after all, even the Demons have cerebral faith. Cerebral faith is not enough. A feeling faith alone is not enough. A empty hope faith is not enough. But small faith, small faith is a faith that hits all dimensions. Small faith is a faith that exists in relationship, in a loving relationship with Jesus where I am in awe at his presence and I know his heart and he knows my heart. And we live in this sweet fellowship, this connection that I can't describe any more than I can describe what it feels like to, to, to be caught in a peal of thunder. 
And this, this small faith, this faith that, that, that will resonate with my mind, it will resonate with my reason, it's rational, it's built on a foundation that I can understand and articulate and share. And it's faith that grabs a hold of a future, even though I don't know what will happen in the future, I know who holds the future. I know who's coming back for me. And I don't live in fear of the future. When my faith penetrates all of those dimensions, even if it's small, even if it's mingled with questions and doubts and uncertainties and confusions, even if it doesn't seem to be all that impressive, Jesus says that faith, that'll move mountains. It'll change your life. It'll change the world. And pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, thank you for this gift of faith. We're reminded that faith is yet another gift that you give to us, and we ask that you would help us to receive it, that you would help us to walk in faith in all of its rich dimensions and all of its splendor, and that we too would live for the day when we hear our Master say to us upon his return, well done, you have been full of faith. Enter into joy. Amen.